You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning. We are in a, seri- a series on Revelation. I want to take just a moment this morning, just for a couple minutes here, and talk about the book of Esther. Uh... Esther was a book, I don't have time to preach a whole sermon on it, about this woman that needed to stand up and do something to save her people. Part of what happens behind that is a man by the name of Mordecai who happens to be her uncle. Mordecai convinces her that she's been put in an opportune time and she doesn't have to do anything, but he actually calls back to the book of Numbers in the Torah And he references a passage in Numbers about a husband and his wife, and when she makes vows, promises, uh, business transactions is the context. And in this ancient patriarchal world, I don't have time to unpack this, essentially the book of Numbers says the husband can undo the vows that are made uh, by his business uh, contractual agreements by his wife. Uh, He can also say... No, that's good, and affirm the vow she's made. He can also say nothing, and the book of Numbers says, if he says nothing, it's the same as condoning the vow that was made. Mordecai speaks to Esther and says, if you do nothing in this moment, it will be the same as condoning what has happened and will happen. About Charlottesville this weekend. This has been a rough year for predominantly white evangelical Christianity here in America. People are very confused as to what we believe and stand for. Thousands of pastors around the country today are getting up to make things, at least a few things, crystal clear. There are a lot of things in life where there are nuances, and I know that the left will spin it one way and the right's going to spin it another way. I understand that. Let a leader in the Christian church say one thing very clearly. This white supremacy garbage is satanic, demonic, and has no place in the way of Jesus. It is not a nuance. It is not a voice that gets a place at the table. All voices trying to seek their God-given design have a place at the table. All voices. But what doesn't, terrorism doesn't have a seat at the table. Murder doesn't have a seat at the table. Racism doesn't have a seat at the table. If this were a Muslim, we would call it a terrorist. If this were an immigrant or a person of color, it would be a totally different conversation. Because he is a white evangelical Christian, we will call this an isolated incident. We cannot be a part of that nonsense. We would want everybody everywhere to call out light and darkness in their movement wherever they find it. We are no different. The testimony of Esther and Mordecai calls to us today. We have to do something because doing nothing is the same as saying it's okay. 
So I give that to you. I know I'm wrestling with it. I know some of the steps that I want to try to take this year. I'm ill-equipped for them. I have no idea really what I'm doing, but I've got to do something. Uh, I invite you to wrestle with some of those same things, and uh, I want to pray if that's okay. Let's pray. Father God, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, you gave us a temple and Hundreds of years before that, this mobile tent we call the tabernacle, it was, it was more than just a place that you wanted to live. It was, a, it was a teaching tool that was designed to teach us how to discern between light and darkness, between truth and falsehood, between the holy and the profane. God, I pray you would do that work in us today. Teach us about light and darkness. Teach us about truth and falsehood. Teach us about the holy and the profane. God, I I want to personally stand up here and confess and repent. I I invite any of my brothers and sisters to join me in prayer as well. I, I want to confess and repent for all of the ways that I have intentionally, overtly, unintentionally participated in ways that, frankly, I don't even understand yet, but I'm beginning to. God, we want to be a part of bringing your kingdom crashing into earth. And as we read here in Revelation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. God, wherever we would find any of this white supremacy in our country, we would know exactly what to call it. And when we find it in our own hearts, we would know exactly what to call it. And we would do the brave, courageous work of rooting it out. So God, we we love you. We want to love you better. And we want to love other people. And so we pray all of this In the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for that moment. I feel like that was needed. And unfortunately, I I can't believe it's needed, but maybe the fact that it's needed should give us enough pause this morning to go, how did we get here? But enough about that. More about Revelation. (laughs) Here's for awkward segues. Um... And in a lot of ways, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And in other ways, it has everything to do with what we're talking about. Because really, this is all, uh, just, let's just go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 8. Here's what we've been doing. We've been, let's read it, and then I'll tell, tell you what I want to, well, we're covering 8 and 9 today. We're only going to read 8. I'll talk about more about where we're headed here in just a moment. But let's, let's read Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. 
And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And a second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A lot of thirds here if you're... A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night." And then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. This is uh, Revelation chapter 8. What we have been doing as we've been walking through Revelation is we have been reading each passage and unpacking, exegeting the on the micro level, like in the guts of the passage, even pulling out the details and all of, and we've been talking about two agendas, right? We've been talking about what agenda over here? Culture, and the, what's the other agenda over here? Say text, make me feel like I taught well. Text, so there's culture on one hand, and what on the other? Text, and what's over here? culture. And, and so we've been looking at all of these things, and we could definitely do that here. I mean, if we were going to talk text here, We'd be here next week because there is so many references, largely out of the Exodus and other things. We'd have to talk about the third thing that keeps coming up over and over again. But we spent most of last week looking at text. This week, I want to back up and look at culture, mainly because there's so much to talk about in text in this part. Let's back up and look at culture. But I also want to do, do the backup thing because we've been looking at Revelation here and here and here and trying to follow this story. I want to step back today and show you that John is doing something here, like the big narrative arc, like the first 10 chapters of Revelation, something has been happening. So there's something happening here that John's very intentional about, but then there's also something happening here that I want to look at today. Are you guys with me? Okay. So to do that today, I want to talk about the games, not necessarily the Olympic games, but they're all... Uh, based off of the Olympic Games. Olympic Games started by the Greeks thousands of years ago. Still going today, obviously. And the Romans took the same idea of the games and they used them for their own political propaganda. It was the easiest way for Rome, for Caesar, for the emperor to put himself in front of people to get everybody together doing something they love. Like we, we understand this, Super Bowl, right? We're gonna get everybody together and we're gonna use this as an opportunity to take our political agenda and promote it and put myself out there and show the world how awesome I am and tell everybody else what I want to tell them. It was a political opportunity, the games were. Oftentimes, a huge figure, sometimes the Caesar, the emperor himself, would show up in your town for a games that he put on, he paid for, all to bring all this celebration together and talk about what he's doing in the empire. Now, if you came to compete in the games as an athlete, you came under the, it's very similar to today, opening ceremonies of the games today, everybody walks in marching under their what? Their flag. In their day, they don't have that. They don't come marching under their flag, but they still come in marching under the metaphorical, at least, banner of their gods. Here's the way that works. 
you are a pagan Roman citizen, and you have in your house a family shrine. Over in the corner of your living space, you have this shrine. You, your family has some god that is worshipped since your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather. And maybe it's the god Janus in your fa- family. Maybe your family has just gone through unbelievable transitions. And so Janus, the, the two-faced god of transitions and doorways, we've talked about him before, uh, this, this god is your family's god, and you have a shrine to Janus, special to your family because of your family's story. But then you also, uh, your father is also a part, he's a blacksmith, and so he's a part of the blacksmith's guild. And the blacksmith's guild, well, they have a god that they worship during their guild feast. We talked about this at the, in the last series on Revelation a couple years ago. They have their gods. And so maybe your father's god of the blacksmiths is the god Apollo. I don't know why weird god to pick, but Apollo. But you also live in Corinth. Well, Corinth has a god. And so when you come to the games, you come representing your gods. It's very tribal. It's like, it's like having your jersey. We understand this. It's like having your jersey on, playing for your team. Everybody knows. who. So you come representing Janus and Apollo and Aphrodite because you come from Corinth. And Corinth's goddess is Aphrodite. And so you come running under the banner of these gods. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, we understand this in our world. Um, it, we're Moscow, so we don't have this problem. But Pullman. <laughs> yeah. We're just about ready to enter a football season. So buckle up. Everybody's going to be wearing blue jerseys. I'm going to walk in there thinking I missed the dress code or something like that. So... I don't know how deep these problems go, but we understand this. We have these tribal affiliations. We all know that people that follow Jesus root for the Bengals. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> we, uh, you've heard the joke about the three houses, like you get to heaven and there's this house and it's got like blue and, and, uh, and it's gray and it's got this bright green trim and, and they're like, oh wow, like who's, whose house is that? And they're like, well, that's, that's Tyler's house. It's dressed up like the Seahawks. Oh, that's great. So you're walking along, and then there's a, there's a, there's a black house with like a, it's got like Steelers emblems on it. And I'm like, whose house is that? Oh, that the, that's the Reyes' house. That's okay. and, and, then, and then up on a hill, grassy knoll, there's a black and orange with a big Bengals logo on the front lawn. And whose house is that? That's God's house. <laughs> Just kidding. You understand the tribal problems we can have. (laughs) But take this and make it very serious in a Roman world where you run for your gods. You run to compete in order to tell the world how great your God is. If you win and you stand on the podium and, and, and there you are on the podium, they don't raise the flag and play the national anthem. They, I don't think they physically raise the gods either, but they, it would be understood Look, Aphrodite gave us an incredible discus thrower. Athena has created an unbelievable runner. Look, Apollo has brought us an unbelievable wrestler. And the credit would go to the gods. Now, all these gods, by the way, point and support who in the Roman world? Him. So the games were a way of bringing all of this tribalism together. All of this We're all a part of this tribe that we root for, but ultimately, glory and honor be to Caesar. Because it's he that gives us this amazing system that we're a part of. Now, 
uh, I want to put some pieces of history together to show you what John's doing in Revelation. If you come up and ask me, what book can I read to find all these, this, all these pieces you talked about? The answer is there isn't one because there's all these different pieces from history that I am, you need to know, taking license like my teacher did to put this together. This is called maximalistic academic theory, okay? There's minimalism, not the kind, not the like get rid of all your spoons, but There's a minimalistic academic approach to scholarship is what I'm trying to say. And then there's a maximalist approach to scholarship. The one believes that you can use the Bible as part of that conversation. The other one does not. I'm taking a maximalist approach to how I'm dealing with my historical license here. If that didn't make any sense, that's okay. We're moving on. Okay? Now... We know from different pieces of history how these games generally operated. I'm not saying that there wasn't exceptions to this, that whatever, but we know how these games operated. First step to the games was this. By the way, these pictures are from an arena in Aphrodisius. Say Aphrodisius. Guess who their goddess was? Aphrodite, okay? So Aphrodisius had this arena. It's the best arena I've ever been. It's unbelievable. 60,000 people at seats, depending on who you ask. And that's where all these photos come from, okay? If the games came to Aphrodisius and the emperor was here, he would come through that tunnel and enter the arena to great pomp and circumstance. I don't know what circumstance means, but that. And then step number two, he would take his seat in the box, and there's a box, right? You can almost, I'm going to awkwardly walk over here, camera guy, forgive me. Here's a box right here, and they would have built a wooden, you've seen it on the movies, they would have built a wooden gladiator, remember, like that thing, okay? That, the box in the arena where Caesar, the emperor, sits, he would have taken his seat in the box, and a great herald would have come out with this huge scroll, I remember when I was in late elementary school, this is dating myself. I didn't used to have to say that, and now I do. I'm getting old. Uh, you, when you wanted to be funny, remember those old printer reams of paper that were all connected? <laughs> like half the room's like, what? And, and, you would, and I remember like, I just have a short speech today, and I'd be like, Whoa. And it was like this funny play, all right? So the Romans did this exact same thing. They'd have this huge scroll because on the scroll were all the titles and pronouncements and accomplishments of Caesar, the emperor. Denarius Stormborn, Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord of the... Okay, never mind. Um, thought that would play better in the second service. Didn't, didn't necessarily work quite as well as I wanted it to. Game of Thrones reference, never mind. All these titles that go on this scroll... The great glorious Caesar. Next step. There'd be what's called Caesar's pronouncements. Caesar's going to stand up in that box and all around the arena are all the different cities of the region that's competing in the games. And so this is Caesar's opportunity to call out all the cities that are gathered. He might say to you, Philippi, you gave me unbelievable, you paid your taxes and then some. You've supported every single item on my campaign agenda this entire year, but I have this against you. You didn't send me very many soldiers. You know, all of the money in the world isn't going to do us any good if we don't have soldiers to fight in the army. Next year, I want more soldiers or I will come and take them myself. To you, Corinth. You sent me a ton of soldiers. Beat your personal record at sending me new troops. Thank you for that. 
but I have this against you. Where's the taxes? If you don't send me your money, I will come and take it next year. And he would go around and talk to every city gathered at the games. After this, there would be the chorus that sings an imperial praise. A choir always led by the 24 chief priests of the legal Roman religions. In Rome, there were 24 religions that had been deemed the official legal religions of Rome. Every one of them had a chief priest that was a member of the emperor's cabinet. They always stood at the front of this choral procession, whether it was a parousia, a games, anything, leading this procession, white robes, golden sashes, wreath crowns. Behind them, a huge choir in white robes, singing the imperial proclamations. One that we have on record, you're not going to believe me, we have it on Roman record, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God, King of kings, who was and who is and who is to come, referring to Caesar. Now you say, but that's in Isaiah. I know. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I don't know if Isaiah is written later than we think. I don't know if the Romans stole it from Isaiah, but we have it on Roman record. This is one of the songs that they would sing to Caesar. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, singing the imperial praise. Next. At this point, the games are opened, usually with a, there might be another herald that comes up, maybe the same one, maybe a different one, with a smaller scroll, a literal scroll, just a, a, a littler, a smaller scroll, just officially opening the games, but the first event of the games is always the same. In every record we have, there's always like a ceremonial first event. It's actually a part of the opening ceremonies. The first event is always this, the chariot races. The colors of the horses are always the same according to Roman record. It's a black horse, a white horse, a red horse, and the fourth one's again might be striped, it might be dappled, it might be pale, it might be something, but you always have those four horses in the chariot race. Uh, yeah, some of you are catching where we're going here. Uh, last stage, set number seven, would be the trumpets. After the chariot race, would be the blast of the trumpets, and this would officially, literally open the games, and now all the different events and competitions would ensue at this point. And here are your seven. Now, if you follow where we're headed, if you can see where we're going, if you've been paying attention to the things that we've been studying, you realize that what John is doing in Revelation is point by point by point setting up a games. John is saying, there is a great games. Look, look, I'll walk you through the seven again. Here's the first one. The presentation of the emperor. Read Revelation 1a. God is presented as the Alpha and the Omega. The Almighty enters the arena. Next, the herald's announcements. John hears a voice telling him to write down what he sees. And then later, I don't know how you want to deal with the nuances of this, but later there ends up being a scroll with all these seals on it with writing on both sides. What's the, what's the implication of writing on both sides? We couldn't even fit it on the scroll. Like you guys have big scrolls. When we talk about the greatness of God, the scroll couldn't even contain the greatness of God. Both sides. You had to use both sides. We still ran out of room. Okay. Uh, Caesar's pronouncements, read Revelation 2 through 3. What is it? It's God's seven letters to the seven churches saying, I've heard about these amazing positive traits, but I have this against you. 
Ephesus. You reject the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You don't stand for heresy and compromise. But I have this against you. You've lost your first love. What is this? This is following play by play through the opening of a games. Next, the chorus sings the imperial praise. What about the crowd in Revelation? Dressed in white robes, led by how many elders? 24. 24 elders, all singing the imperial pronouncements only to a different kind of emperor. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Games opened, Revelation 5. What about this slain lamb who's found worthy to open up the scrolls? And what immediately follows after Revelation 5? The chariot races. The horses appear. What colors? White, red, black, pale. Now, but, but you said, Marty, it came from Zechariah, 700 years prior to... I know! We have this literal cultural evidence. We have this text right in front of us. How does John do this? I don't know. I can imagine the day that John's sitting there going, ah, oh, man, I wonder if I, if I did it like a game, it would be this and then be that. And then the, oh my, the, the colors of the horses, Zach, Zach grabs his phone and starts texting Paul. Paul, you'll never guess what I just came up with. Like the day it hits him, like, this is going to be brilliant. <laughs> I don't know how that worked. I honestly don't know. And then, and then what about the last one? What do we read about today in Revelation 8? And it's going to go into 9 and eventually trail into 10. The trumpets. This is a games. Now, on this level, remember I said we've been doing this, and I wanted to do this. On this level, we've been looking at this 144,000 who's being enlisted to fight this cosmic battle, not using the way of the world, not using the method of this guy, but using the method of the who? Slain lamb. You see, this army is gathering. It's the way they're going to engage. They don't go to take life. They go to lay their lives down. And there's been this argument inside Revelation. But then here... John is making the exact same argument with a totally different metaphor. On this level, he's painting the picture of a games. And he's saying, you all find yourselves as runners, athletes, competitors in this game. These games that are being fought, this cosmic competition. This cosmic competition between the Alpha and the Omega and this guy. And you're thinking, well, not much of a matchup. Unless you're living it. And this guy's killing everybody that you know, literally. Not as a metaphor. Coming after and killing your brothers and sisters who lay down their lives willingly to keep the faith. And you're going, thank you, John, about the poetic alpha and omega thing. But really? And he says, yes. And the way that you run your race, the way that you run your race tells the world what your God is like. You see, this is actually why what I talked about before I got started is actually important. 
Because the way that you run your race matters to the world around you. It tells the world what God is like. If the world is confused about what we believe in, the problem is in how we are running our race. Look at these passages. This isn't just John. This is Paul. This is writer of Hebrews. Look at this. Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul says, Corinth, don't you know that you're running a spiritual race and the way that you run your race tells the world what God is like? Don't you know that only one runner gets a prize? Why aren't you running to win? Why are you walking? Why are you dabbling? Why are you, oh, well, maybe someday I'll get around to it. This is about showing the world who your God is. Run in such a way that you want to win. Next, how about this out of Timothy, still Paul. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What will it be like to be able to say at the end of your life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finishing well is not easy, or so it seems. Finish well. To be able to say that with a good, clear conscience. What a life. Your best days are not behind you. I don't care how old you are. Your best days are in front of you. In front of you. Next, how about Hebrews? This isn't John in Revelation. This isn't Paul. This is some other writer. And like we've said, whoever she is, she is brilliant. Thank you. Revelation 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Appropriate image for the people of the first century? He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat, and sat down, excuse me, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Run the race. Now, I have some implications that I want to work through as usual. So we're going to invite our servers if they want to go back to get our bread and our juice ready. If you are visiting with us, we have an open communion table, open Eucharist table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family and you need to join us. Just hold on to the bread, hold on to the juice, and we'll take it all together here as a family in just a moment. First implication, 
We have to trust that God finishes what he starts. We have to trust that the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, is finishing, not just will finish one day, but as you look around and everything around you is other runners and other competitors and everybody's doing it better than you and your life is crumbling all around you and there's nothing but despair at your doorstep. I'm not talking about someday. We have to trust in those moments that God, the, you can't find him. You look and you see the beast and you see the dragon, but you can't see the alpha and the omega anywhere. We have to trust that the alpha and the omega finishes, it's in the name, alpha, omega, finishes what he starts. You have to trust, no matter your circumstances, that God is finishing, not just will finish. He is finishing what he starts, and you are a part of that process. You are a part of that redemptive work. Second implication, the great cloud of witnesses bears testimony to this truth. Whether that's, the, whether that's the cloud of witnesses that Hebrews speaks of, all those people from the Old Testament, all those people that were sawed into, that went nameless, uh, they're, they're thrown into, uh, they're stoned to death, they live in holes in the ground, destitute and mistreated, whether it's all of those people, whether it's those that gave their life in the great multitude that Revelation spoke to us about in Revelation 5 and 6, that those people in the centuries, the first few centuries of the church who died at the tip of the Roman sword, whether it's that group of people, whether it's the great cloud of witnesses that's in your life that you know by name. And some of you even uh, have spoken to me in the last few weeks about you actually know people by name who gave their life for their faith, missionaries in other countries, different things here and there. One person, even a, a school shooting. Pe people that kept the faith. And maybe it's not even people that gave their lives, but they gave big parts of their lives to making sure that you had a walk with Jesus. These great clouds of this great cloud of witnesses in your life bears testimony to the truth that God finishes what he starts. It's just that it's bigger than my personal experience. I am a part of something that God is doing in this world and I don't know why he does this and he doesn't do that and I don't, but the alpha and the omega is the one who emerges victorious at the end of this games. There's only one person standing on a podium when it's over and it's the alpha and it's the omega. Next implication. The way you run your race is far more meaningful to others than you realize. The way that you run your race. The way that you run your race is far more meaningful to others than you realize. And we rarely get to see that because we don't see the way that people are impacted by the way that we run our race. So maybe there's somebody in your life you need to tell. Maybe you need to tell somebody this week, I'm inspired by the way you run your race. Not by how far you go or how fast you are or any of those. Not because you end up as the winner, but because of the way you run. You inspire me by the way you run your race. But trust me, let's talk about your children. Your children will appreciate the way you run your race as they get older and older and wiser and wiser and more and more mature they will begin to appreciate the way that you ran your race. And so do not compromise the way that you run your race just to win the race. 
Make sure that you run your race in the way that puts the right gods on display. Your children will see it. Your spiritual children will see it. Those that come behind you will see it. Last invocation. Starting the race is great, but means nothing if it isn't finished. Starting the race is awesome. You, you can come out of the blocks just screaming. If you don't finish, it doesn't matter. Finish the race. Finish the race. Finish. Don't give up. You have to run the race. You have to keep the faith. For all those people that come behind you, if nothing else, keep the faith just as these great people in Revelation did for you and me. Now, in our hands we hold this. Uh, to be quite honest, I'm not going to try to bridge the gap this morning. There's so much that you and I may or may not be thinking of this morning. There's so much that way, but, but this is the way of the slain lamb. This reminder, somehow this is the alpha and the omega. This is what is still there at the end of it all. At the end of nuclear war, at the end of everything that we could ever imagine, at the end of it all, somehow slain lamb victorious. Somehow, in the midst of your horrible story of the way that somebody has wronged you, somehow slain lamb emerges with the gold medal. Somehow in the midst of all of our mistakes and the ways that we've participated in systemic racism and the ways that we've remained silent in the face of things like white supremacy, somehow in the midst of all of that, slain lamb says, there's still another day tomorrow. There's still slain lamb wins. It's a hard counterintuitive truth to believe but slain lamb wins. He took a piece of bread that night, Jesus did. He was with his disciples. He was having a Passover meal. He took it and he broke it. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the slain lamb. And then later in the meal, he took a cup. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the slain lamb today. Father God, I know that when I think about the race, I, I think I feel most of the time like I don't even know what event I'm competing in. I, I look around and life is coming at me from one direction and life is pulling me another direction and there's things that I think I can see but I don't see clearly and I'm just surrounded by what feels like chaos and I don't even know what you're exactly calling me to do. But God, I pray that we would all do our best and I pray that when we run, we would run. We might even be running the wrong direction. We might be competing in the wrong event. But I pray that the way we would run our race, the way we would compete in the games would show the world what an incredible God who is deliverer, who is overcomer, who is restorer, who is the alpha and the omega, the almighty. People would see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness in the face of unbelievable greed and power grabs and corruption and in the face of all of that, people would see light and the darkness would not overcome it.
God, I, I pray for your help. I pray for your leadership and your guidance. I pray for your still small voice that I, that I and all of us would be quiet enough to hear the still small voice telling us to the right or to the left and we would run with all of our might. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name, Jesus' resurrected name we pray this morning. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.